millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Russia podcast. As usual, I'm Damon, well at least for the past couple of weeks I have been, and this is episode 3, Our Land is Vast and Abundant. So last time out, in the second of two scene-setting episodes, I provided an historical background that took us from the Paleolithic or Old Stone Age through to the early medieval, and we finished off with the Eastern Vikings, aka the Varangians, aka the Rus, establishing trading links with the Byzantine Empire, and setting up a trading post at a place called Holmgard in the middle of the 9th century. This week, in the first episode proper, our chronological narrative begins and we'll be investigating how and when and by whom the first proto-Russian political entity of a sort was founded. And we'll also look at the different chronicles and sources that track the history of the period, and we'll spend a bit of time looking at their background, and then we'll look at some of the issues these sources present and try to piece together what probably happened. And finally, I'm going to do a whistle-stop tour around Europe and Asia and see what's going on there, just to provide a bit of context. Okay, but before we get going, a couple of points. And and first of all, a minor correction. So in episode two, I breezily stated that the Rus first reached Constantinople in the early 30s, the early 830s, I should say which is stretching things a bit because they probably first visited Constantinople in either 838 or 839 
depending on which source you choose to believe. And if I was a betting man, it would be 838 for me. And while we're on the subject of dates, we're not sure which dating system was in use by either the Rus or the Slavs during the time period covered by this episode. It could have been the traditional Western or Julian calendar, or, as seems more likely, the calendar used by the Eastern Orthodox Church from the year 691. Or it could have been both, or a bit of both. Interestingly enough, the Orthodox calendar took its start date as the year 5509 BCE, as this was believed to have been the date of the creation. And the calendar was later adopted by the Byzantines and the Russians in the year 988, and it remained in use in Russia until the year 1700, at which time the Julian calendar was adopted. And finally, naming conventions. Throughout the podcast, I'll be taking a somewhat lazy route with names, and I'll use the common English conventions where, where they exist. So, for example, I'll say Michael instead of Mikhail, and I'll say Peter instead of Piotr. But slightly annoying, annoyingly for me as well as you, uh, Vsevolod and Sviatopolk will remain as Vsevolod and Sviatopolk. Okay, strap yourselves in, let's get on with it. So according to the main sources, in the year 862, or there or thereabouts, but we'll come on to that, the inhabitants of the Novgorod region, who were mainly Slavs but also included some Finnish and Baltic tribes, and who were all worn down with the continual fighting and violence in their lands, invited the Varangians, stroke Rus, that were presumably living in Hongard, to come and rule over them, saying, Our land is vast and abundant, but there is no order in it. Come and reign as princes and have authority over us. And so, Rurik, a Varangian chief, or prince, and his two younger brothers, Truvor and Sineas, and their kin, took up the locals' kind offer, and so started the Rurikid dynasty, which ruled over the various Russian or Russian states for most of the next 736 years. Unfortunately, no, though, well, certainly for them, Truvor and Sineas soon die, and Rurik and his henchmen, I just love that word, henchmen, are left in sole charge of Novgorod, and there's no mention of Holmgard, and several other towns or settlements in the vicinity. So was this the founding of a state or nation? Well, no, not really in the modern sense of the word. We are told that the Varangians stayed in Novgorod and the surrounding areas, that they intermarried with the Slavs and formed a loose confederation of clans and tribes. So that's nice and simple and cosy, and it's the version that has been widely accepted through the ages. But how much of this foundation story is fact, and how much is myth? Well, let's see what we can find out from the three main established sources. And first off, we have the tale of bygone years, known in English language historiography as the Primary Chronicle, or the Russian Primary Latopis, or 
after the author it has traditionally been ascribed to Nestor's Latopis or the Latopis of Nestor. So I bet you're scratching your heads at that uh, and wondering who was Nestor and what on earth is a Latopis? Well, Nestor was a monk at the Kievan, Kievan Caves Monastery and in fact his body is still there and is actually interred within the caves. Nestor served at the court of Sviatopolk II of Kiev, who ruled between 1093 and 1113, and who compiled a Latopis, which, well, that's Nestor, not Sviatopolk, which, unlike chronicles and annals, contains a melange of historical documents, oral traditions, often of a mysterious nature, and excerpts from previous chronicles combined with the text of the chronicler himself. And pretty much the Latopis is seen as being more a work of fiction, really, although it is based loosely on historical records. So this primary chronicle is a history of the Kievan Rus from the mid-9th century to around the year 1110, and it was thought to have been compiled in Kiev in around 1113. The work is considered to be a fundamental source in the interpretation of the history of the Eastern Slavs and the chronicle's content is known to us today from several surviving editions and codices that have been revised over the years and which evidence only a slight degree of variation from one another. However, and it's a big however, its reliability has been widely called into question and it's basically seen as being a romantic view of history that gets ahead of, and in some places, in the way of, the facts. Then we have the Novgorod First Chronicle, or the Chronicle of Novgorod, which is considered to be the most ancient of the existing chronicles of the Novgorodian Rus. Now, we don't know who the author or authors were, but the Novgorod Chronicle, which was probably put together in the second half of the 13th century, reflects a different tradition and contains much valuable information that was suppressed in the later primary chronicle. And then thirdly, we have the Sophia First Chronicle, which is a Russian chronicle associated with the St. Sophia Cathedral in Novgorod. We don't know too much about this, and, and, and again, we don't know who put it together, but it can be dated to approximately either the early or mid-15th century. So it's great to have these three sources, but they present us with certain problems. And the first being the year 862 itself. And that's why I said there or thereabouts when describing the foundation story a bit earlier on in the podcast. So the Sophia First Chronicle takes 859 as the date of Novgorod's foundation, when it was supposedly already a major Baltics to Byzantium station on the trade route from the Varangians to the Greeks. But the primary and Novgorod chronicles state that it took place in 862. And if we unearth something different, the charter of Veliki Novgorod, remember that Veliki just means great, again states that 859 was the year. So a couple of the sources mention 862, a couple of others mention 859. Well, I'm not going to get too hung up on this at this point. 
I mean, after all, we're only talking of a three-year difference, so what's the big issue? Well, the problem is that other doubts raised across the years are more fundamental and include such basic questions as were Homegard and Novgorod the same place? Was Rurik a real person? Did the Slavs really invite the Rus to come and rule them? And when did the Varangians first raid Constantinople? We'll look at this one in more detail in the next episode, but it's a really confusing picture. So unfortunately, we don't know the answers to some basic questions, but in today's Russia, people are brought up on the understanding that Rurik and his brothers were definitely invited to rule from their trading base just outside an existing Slavic settlement, and that all of this definitely happened in the year 862. And of course, received history and perception are so powerful, difficult to question, and you can find examples littered across the years from many different places in the world, where the history of a certain period was manipulated years later to fit a certain agenda, or a common perception has grown up around an oft-repeated myth. I mean, take 1066 and all that. Did Edward the Confessor tell William the Bastard, or William the Conqueror, he could be the next King of the English? Had Cowled Godwinson also sworn to accept, accept this state of affairs when his ship was conveniently blown off course several years prior to the invasion? And if so, why did he then accept the crown when it was offered to him? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. How did Edward II and Richard II, the deposed Plantagenet kings of England, die? Did George Washington never tell a lie? Was Lincoln the best president ever? Did an apple fall on Isaac Newton's head? And who was Robin Hood? Well, unfortunately, the answer to all of those questions is either probably, or we don't know, or no, or yes, or it depends. And whilst I'm starting to meander off course, and perhaps I've not used the best examples, I do sometimes wonder if anyone is really worried. Well, here at the History of Russia podcast, we are. Well, it's only me. And I think it's well worth taking a look at what probably happened. And to do that, we're going to invoke a bit of Groucho Marx, who, as a character in one of his films, famously said the following... So he was talking to a female character in one of his films and he was running through every single principle that he had. And at the end of that conversation, he turned around and he said, 
and they're my principles. And if you don't like them, I've got others. So we're going to substitute the word principles for the word sources because I have other sources. So if you didn't like the first three, I've got others. So let's take a look at what probably happened. And here I'm going to underline the word probably. So there had possibly been a political hierarchy somewhere to the north of the middle Dnieper River long before the turn of the ninth century. But it's difficult to know this for certain. And we don't know what made up that political entity. Was it just a Slavic political entity? Was it a Rus political entity? Or was it a bit of both? However, according to another source, and this time it's from the Byzantines, by at least the year 838, the Rus, or the Rus, as they called them, were in place and ruling in the Novgorod area. And then according to another one of our new sources, the Frankish court annals from the same period, some of these Rus, or Rus, accompanied a Byzantine embassy to the court of the Frankish king, Louis the Pious. Now, Louis was a son of Charlemagne, and just to put it into context, he ruled in France, or Francia, between 814 and 840, with a brief interruption in the 830s. So these, court, these Frankish court annals go on to mention that the Rus were organised under a king, or Kagan, and that they belonged to the people of the Swedes. Now that term Kagan was used by a culture who we have not yet met. And interestingly enough, they're mentioned in Nestor's Lutopis, or Primary Conical, and that's the Khazars, or the Khazars. I'm going to say Khazars from now on, because it's easier to say. The Khazars were a semi-nomadic Turkic people within a confederation of Turkic-speaking tribes that in the late 6th century had established a major commercial empire covering the southeastern section of modern European Russia, southern Ukraine, Crimea and Kazakhstan. Now, the Varangian trade routes to Byzantium and beyond pass through not only lands inhabited by the Slavs via the Dnieper, but also those inhabited by the Khazars via the Volga. And we can strongly assume based upon the archaeological excavations and findings, that the Varangians had multiple exchanges with the Khazars, and that some of their practices and culture must have had an influence and impact on the Rus, in a similar way to the impact that the Slavs must have had on the Rus, and vice versa. And other physical finds have established that the Varangians did have trading bases near Lake Ladoga, Lake Ladoga is near modern St. Petersburg. There was one at a place called Staria Ladoga, which I mentioned in the last episode, and the other just to the south of later Novgorod, on an island-like site, now called the Vyurikovo Gorodisha, which Arab sources describe as a huge boggy island, three days' journey wide. And perhaps this was the famous Homgord. We, we just don't know. And it's this belief that this later site, this uh, Rurikovo Gorodice, was the one that was visited by a Byzantine religious mission in the early 860s. 
And this mission had been requested by the Rus as they had become intrigued by orthodox religious practices during one or more of their famous visits to Constantinople. But we also hear from these various sources that there were signs of turbulence between the different bands of Rus during this period, as there is evidence that both of the previously mentioned trading sites suffered huge amounts of damage, with Staraya Ladoga being burnt to the ground at some point between 863 and 871, and with Rurikovo Gorodish suffering a similar fate shortly afterwards. And following the destruction of these two former trading posts, there is further evidence that by the end of the 9th century, new building work had taken place in the Novgorod area, which could point to the fact that there was a new sheriff in town. Or it could point to the fact that the old sheriff had defeated someone trying to become the new sheriff. Anyway, it doesn't really matter, and I won't be mentioning the word sheriff again, but somebody likely defeated somebody else and became the effective chief or prince. And was this somebody Rurik and his gang, his henchmen? Well, we can't say. Did this happen in 838, 859, or 862, or possibly later? Probably not. But again, we can't say for definite. But what we can say, with a degree of confidence, and okay, I'm sticking my neck out a bit here, is that the primary chronicle, the Novgorod Chronicle, and the Sophia Chronicle, and therefore all of the subsequent Russian chronicles, because they all happen to be based on the earlier three, were very broadly on the right track, but they just invented a few things, like dates and names, you know, just minor things like that. And they romanticised the story, and this served the ambitions and mindsets of the later Rurikid rulers of Kiev, who for political reasons wanted all the world to see how the Slavs and the Varangians together had established Novgorod, and that they were invited in because that gave subsequent rulers much more legitimacy. Think about it. As an established dynasty, it's much more sensible to say that you were invited to rule several hundred years ago because things were so bad, rather than just taking what you wanted. And it also sends a powerful message to anyone else who is thinking of doing the same. We are the legitimate rulers here, and we can prove it. Look at our chronicles. Don't even think of trying to push us out. Okay, I think we've established that there's a degree of uncertainty around the 862, let's, the, let's invite them in thing. And what probably happened is that after a period of Varangian infighting, which occurred at some point during the middle to late 800s, one group of Varangians came to the fore and decided to take over in Novgorod to A, protect the trade routes, and B, well, that's just what they did. That's what I reckon anyway. And as Orwell states in 1984, he who, control, he who controls the past controls the future. And I reckon there was some of that going on here. Okay, so let's put all of that to one side and take a look at what was going on in Europe and further afield in the arbitrary year 860. Or the years 6368 to 6369, according to the Eastern Orthodox calendar. And we'll start off in the Byzantine Empire, 
June the 18th to be precise, we have the Byzantine Rus War, where a fleet of about 200 Rus vessels sails into the Bosphorus and starts pillaging the suburbs of Constantinople. And as mentioned at the front of this episode, we'll explore this in further detail next time. In Europe, we had lots of Vikingy stuff going on. So first off, King Charles the Bald gives the order to build 45 bridges across the Seine and Loire rivers to protect Paris and the Frankish heartland against Viking raids. And what he does is he hires the service of someone called Velan, who was a Viking chieftain based on the Somme, to attack the same Vikings at their base on the island of Oysel. So this bloke, Veland, besieges the same Vikings, but they offer him a huge bribe, 6,000 pounds of silver, to let them escape. And you see, money can buy you time. Just ask Ethelred the Unready, or to be precise, Ethelred Unred of England, who used this ploy many times in the 10th and 11th centuries. The Viking chieftains Hastein and Bjorn Ironside are ravaging across Italy. They sack the city of Luna, believing it to be Rome, and they then sail up the River Arno to sack a couple of cities in Tuscany. And then more Viking raiders, but this time led again by Velen. I mean, this guy's everywhere. Sail to England and attack Winchester, which is the capital of Wessex. And he's set ablaze, and then Velen spreads inland, but he's eventually defeated by the West Saxon forces. And talking about the West Saxons, King Ethelbald of Wessex died in 860 after a short two and a half year reign, and was succeeded by his brother Ethelbert. And, of course, both Ethelbald and Ethelbert were the brothers of, that's right, Alfred the Great. In Asia, the Tang dynasty is going strong in China, and in Japan, we're in the middle of the Asuka period, which was characterised by significant artistic, social and political transformations of the nascent Japanese state. OK, let's leave it there for this week. In the next episode, we'll be taking a look at what the Rus did, or probably did next, and investigating in more detail their contacts with the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. Just before I disappear, just a quick mention that the podcast website is historyofrussia, that's all one word, dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. And this is where I post any visual aids, aids such as maps, stats and timelines for any of the episodes that need them. And then if you want to get in touch, then either leave me a comment via your podcasting platform of choice, or if you've got a question, or perhaps a longer comment, then drop me a mail at nordicworld.outlook.com. So that's nordicworld, N-O-R-D-I-C-W-O-R-L-D, at outlook.com. Okay, that's it. Until the next time, stay safe, and as the old Amish father says in the 1985 film Witness, be careful out amongst the English. I'll see you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.